No, you did good. Bro, what happened was my mom is sitting next to us, and when you said 60-plus, she cheered. And so Chris and I started laughing, and then Chris said, you can actually go to this one, John. Um, and I, yeah, and I, yeah, so it was just a inside. If your fly had been down, I would have been on the floor laughing, Jake. That's how you could, you could know. Okay, good morning. Glad that you're here. We're in a series called Flawed Heroes. Uh, and the title is not, we're not looking for the worst person in the Bible. That's not uh, what the idea is about. Here's the hope behind this series. We believe that there was only one who was perfect, and that was Jesus. And that the rest of us have flaws. Yes or no? We all struggle with things. And so I think what the Bible shows so clearly is that people who love God and want to do great things for God and did do great things for God, did it having flaws in their life. And so that should bring encouragement to us because all of us want to do great things for God too, and yet we have flaws in our life. And so what I'm trying to show from this is the flaw is not a reason to say no. The flaw is not a reason to disqualify. It's actually something that you can see in the Bible. It's in there not to pull the wool over our eyes, but actually to show us how to make it through and to do well when we have flaws in our life. So today, uh, this might seem on the surface like, Pastor, you are stretching on this one, but wait till you hear it, because uh, I think you'll see it. I'm going to talk about Elijah a little bit today. Now, Elijah's a major prophet from the Old Testament. Some of the greatest miracles that you'll read in the Bible, Elijah was a part of. Elijah was one of the few people uh, in the Bible that never died. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And I don't understand how all of that works, and uh, how, but he's one of the two witnesses that come back at the end of time. Um, and so, you know, did God have a way that he, pre- oh, God can do anything, right? So he's got a way that he preserved him in some, in some form or fashion. So Elijah would be a hero. Elijah's one of those people that if we're, you know, if, if heaven permits like conversations, right? And I think it does, then wouldn't it be great to talk to him about some of those miracles, what it was like and what it looked like and what it felt like. I think that would be great. But Elijah did have a time where we experience a flaw with him, uh, and it comes in the form of a confrontation with a wicked queen named Jezebel. And you notice that, uh, man, biblical names are handed down generation after generation, but nobody names their daughter Jezebel. (laughs) And if you were contemplating it, don't don't do it. Don't do it. Um, 1 Kings 19 We're going to read a few verses here to tell this story. Um, So we begin at verse 1, King Ahab. So Ahab is the king over Israel. Israel split at this time. There's Judah and Israel. Uh, Judah is following after God, and Israel has gotten into idolatry and is really wandering away from God. And part of the, um, the curse on the nation of Israel is that they end up with a really wicked king, and the king is named Ahab. And here's what the Bible says about Ahab. There was no king worse than Ahab. I mean, how would you like that title after your, your name, right? No king worse than Ahab. And uh, King Ahab marries a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel is a Phoenician, which is not far from where uh, Israel is. Uh, they did a lot of trading back and forth, and it was a center of power in that day. And so to unite two kingdoms... Ahab married Jezebel. But Jezebel is an idol worshiper, and one of the things that the Lord had warned Israel about was, hey, you need to be careful not to intermarry. Okay, you're my people, you're peculiar, you're special, you're set aside just for me, and if you do this, your heart will be turned away to idols. And so I don't want you to do that. I want you to, to, to find people who believe like you do and stay within that, right? And so that was what they were told. That's what they were supposed to do. And Ahab's doing the exact opposite. Jezebel worships 
really wicked gods that are really, it's messed up. She imports her prophets into Israel. They actually build temples for them. And they still worship Jehovah, but they also worship the Baals right next to Jehovah. And they put them on an equal footing, right? So I'm trying to give you a little bit of a picture. So Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how Elijah had killed all the prophets with a sword. So let me, let me back up and tell that story, and then I'll read the rest of this to you, okay? And then I'll go. So the story is that the prophets she imported, she imported 450 prophets of her god, Baal. And they were there like Israel's priests, right? His prophets. They were there to help the people to worship. And so um, there's a confrontation that Elijah has with these prophets, and he pulls as many of the people together as possible, and he said, hey, quit wavering between two gods, two opinions. Let's, let's figure out who is God. And so here's the contest. You build an altar. You put a sacrifice on the altar. Then you pray to your gods all day long and pray that a fire comes down and consumes. And if your God answers, then we'll all worship your God. But if Jehovah answers, then quit wavering between two opinions and let's, uh, let's worship Jehovah. So the prophets of Baal start early in the morning and they prepare an altar and they put the sacrifice on it and they're yelling and they're praying and nothing is happening. So Elijah begins to taunt them. Hey, yell a little bit louder. Maybe he's outside. One of the translations says maybe he's on the toilet. You need to cry a little bit louder, right? And so he's just taunting. They begin to cut themselves. They believe by the flagellation that somehow this false god is going to answer. And they do this all day long until they wear themselves out. Nothing happens. So then Elijah says, okay, and help me. So he builds an altar with 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He digs a moat around it, lays the sacrifice on it, and then he has them get water and dump it all over the sacrifice so that it's really wet, not once, not twice, but three times so that the moat actually is holding the water. It's soaking wet. And then he prays a simple prayer. Let the God who is God answer by fire. And a fire literally comes out of heaven, consumes, right? Not only that altar, but it consumes the other altar and everything around it. And then Elijah, in a moment of power and victory, Israel is like Jehovah is God. They seize the 450 prophets of Baal. They bring them down and they actually kill all 450 of them. And you would think, wow, he's turned the nation to God. Like if you're visiting this morning, are you like, did you pick this as a visitor message? Pastor, is that... <laughs> I am going somewhere with this. So he has this great victory, turns the nation, uh, that those are there back to the Lord. And you would think that there's just this really powerful moment, but now the reality that he's messed with this wicked queen. And this queen... As many prophets as Elijah just killed, she's killed double that in Israel. But they're the prophets of God. And um, so we pick the story up. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how Elijah had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me terribly if by this time tomorrow I don't kill you just as you killed those prophets. And she meant it. Not a woman who threatens idly, not a woman who this would be the first time she's been killing prophets. Uh, Elijah's actually been hiding for three years at this time just to keep him safe. So when Elijah heard this, here's the flaw, right? Here's the, the thing. He was afraid. Now, wouldn't you think you just had this incredible victory, this wonderful thing just happened. I mean, you did something that's not been done in Israel where you could ever point to it before. 
And the people have turned back to God and it's really powerful and you're riding this great spiritual wave and yet he gets threatened by this queen and instead of standing in the power that the Lord has, he's overcome by the fear of man or woman in this case. So he ran for his life, taking a servant with him and when they came to Beersheba in Judah, I've been there, it's the middle of the desert, man, there is nothing around it. Elijah is not far enough away from her, so he leaves his servant there. Then Elijah walked for a whole day further into the desert, and he sat down under a, brush, uh, a bush, and he asked the Lord uh, to die. There's a very faith-filled prayer right there, right? Just like... So this is his prayer. I had enough, Lord, he prayed. Let me die. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree, and he slept. We don't know how long he slept, but suddenly an angel appears, came to him, touched him, get up and eat, the angel said. Right? Real spiritual words, get up and eat. Elijah saw uh, near his head a loaf baked over coals and a jar of water, so he ate and drank, and then he went back to sleep for a second time. And again, we don't know how long he slept, but I bet he was simply just exhausted, right? And later the Lord's angel came to him a second time, and the angel touched him and said, get up and eat, and if you uh, don't, the journey will be too hard for you. So Elijah got up, he ate and he drank um, the food, made, for, made him strong enough to walk for 40 days and nights to Mount That is some kind of angel bread right, right there. If one of those food trucks had that, that would be the line to get in right there, right? <laughs> so, um, so he walked 40 days and nights to Mount Sinai. Remember, Mount Sinai is where Moses went face to face with God and received the Ten Commandments. So it's called the Mountain of God. And there Elijah went into a cave and he stayed all night. Then the Lord, now the wording here is interesting because watch how it changes. So the Lord spoke his word to him. Let's pay attention to this real quick. Elijah, why are you here? And just real quickly, if God ever asks you a question, it's not because he lacks the information. Right? God is not surprised by this. God is not shocked by this. God is not hurt by this. God is not like thrown like, oh my goodness, we had this great spiritual victory. Elijah could have really capitalized and now he's full of fear and I've just really got to find out what's going on with you, Elijah. He knows exactly what's going on. When God asks us a question, it's more or less he's trying to get us to understand what's going on with us. So remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They partake of the fruit and then they hear the sound of the Lord God in the middle of the day when he came to visit them like he would do. And instead of running to God, they hide. Now, God knows they're hiding because he knows everything, but the question that he asked them is, where are you? He's not asking because he lacks the knowledge. He's asking them, where are you? What's happened? So he's asking a question not because God's like, I don't understand. He's trying to get Elijah to understand. So Elijah answers, Lord God, all-powerful, I've always served you as well as I could, but the people of Israel have broken their agreement with you, destroyed your altars, killed your prophets with swords. I'm the only prophet left. You ever prayed a prayer like that? Not as the only prophet, but like, God, everybody else, it's just all failed. I'm the only prophet left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord was really shaken by Elijah's prayer, and so he left Elijah there. No, the Lord said to Elijah, go stand in front of me on the mountain, and I will pass by you. So check this out. Then a very strong wind blew, and it caused the mountains to fall apart and large rocks to break in front of the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a quiet, gentle sound. Some say a whisper. When Elijah heard it, 
Then he covered his face in respect because he recognized the presence of the Lord. And he went out and he stood at the entrance to the cave. Then a voice said to him, not the word, but now the presence of the Lord speaks to him. Elijah, why are you here? Elijah answers the same way. Lord God, all powerful. I have always served you as well as I could. Same, same answer. But the people of Israel have broken their agreement with you, destroyed your altars, killed your prophets with swords, and I'm the only prophet left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And we find Elijah in this really funny place where this great spiritual battle has taken place, and he's won, and yet now two days later, he finds himself running, and then 40 days from there, and he's asking the Lord really pouring out his heart, and there must be something in that that's good for him, but the Lord doesn't stop right there. The Lord actually recommissions him. And so I thought I would just, if you're taking the online notes, let me give you three things about this. We'll only get to two of them today. The first one is just the power of fear. The power of fear. Look at verse three again, real quick. When Elijah heard this, he was afraid, and he ran for his life, taking a servant with him. When they came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there. Now I mentioned a moment ago, Adam and Eve, I heard you in the garden and I hid because I was afraid. That's what Adam said. Abraham, when he married his wife and they go on a journey, they get to Egypt and he realizes how beautiful his wife is. So he tells her, I want you to lie and tell everybody you're my sister. I'm just curious Ladies, if your husband told you to do that, how many of you would be, oh, that's a great plan. Let's, <laughs> let's do that. And she agrees to it. And the king takes her and he begins to woo her. And the only thing that saves her is God gives him a dream. You touch her and you're a dead man. And he goes back and tells him, how could you fool me this way? And then, you know, it says that the sins of the father repeat Abraham's son Isaac with Rebecca that he worked 14 years for does the exact same thing with her. Goes to a country, realizes how beautiful he is and, or she is and then tells her, hey, tell them you're my sister. This worked for my mom and dad. Let's try this. <laughs> 10 of the 12 spies that Moses sent into the promised land. You remember that story? 10 of the 12 came back with this report. They are too big. They are too mean. They are too ugly. It's too much trouble. And it said they began to spread a bad report that caused fear amongst the people. But the other two, Joshua and Caleb, tried to stop the fear. No, no, no. We are well able to go in and take this land. But the people listened to the report of fear and then tried to stone Joshua and Caleb and voted amongst themselves to find a new leader to take them back to Egypt. And God's judgment on that fear and that rebellion was, you're not going to enter the promised land. You're going to wander for 40 years. And you thought your children were going to end up slaves. They're going to end up being in freedom because I'm taking them into the promised land, not you. And fear cost that generation the promise of God. And I wonder how many times fear causes us to lose out on the promises that God has for us. How about the foolish servant with the talents? Jesus tells a story one time where he's trying to talk about 
the talents that have been given to us in our life, we've got to invest them. We've got to do things with them so that the Lord can use them. And so he gives, uh, different translations use different amounts of money, but one I read recently said that he gave $10,000 to one servant and immediately the man put it to work and doubled it, made $20,000. And he gave $5,000 to one servant and that guy put it to work and immediately doubled it. Now he's got 10. But to the third servant, he gave $2,000. And it says this, he buried it in the ground. So when the master comes back, the first one gives him 20,000. And Jesus says, well done, you good and faithful servant. To the second one, he hands him 10,000. I doubled what you gave me. Well done, you good and faithful servant. And the third one says, I was afraid of you because you're a hard taskmaster and you reap where you haven't sown. So I felt the best thing to do was just to bury it. And Jesus says, you should have at least put it in the bank so I got some interest off of it. Must have been a different day and age that they added their banking system. Sorry, 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 sorry. And he called him a wicked servant because of the fear that kept him from doing something with the talent in his life. How about the disciples? In the moment that Jesus needed them most, they ran away because they were afraid. Peter was so fearful that three times he denied Jesus. And we read these stories and we think, how could they do that? You know what I see? I think, I wonder if I would do the same thing. I think the Bible was written not to show us, hey, here's how people live perfect lives. I think the reason it puts the flaw in there is because we can identify with people who actually come back from the flaw and go on to do great things, but there were times in their lives where they blew it, yes or no? And so we find ourselves, instead of being discouraged by it, we relate to it. Remember the old pastor I told you about when I first started in ministry? He said, if you want to impress people, John, tell them of all your successes. People love heroes. But if you want to impact people, tell them how you struggle and show them how to get through the struggles. That was wise advice, man. Wise advice. Today, we live in a time of fear. It seems like it multiplied during a pandemic, yes or no? I mean, I read almost every day about young people struggling with fear and the emotional damage that it's done to them. Are you reading it? Even test scores now are dipping lower than ever before because they're saying children have been caught in such a web of fear in the last three years. Do you know that there's people that still are afraid to go to church? Afraid to go shopping? Afraid to be around other people? I get a compromised immune system, and I'm not trying to talk down to any, but fear's one of those things like it comes in and makes you feel like you have a compromised immune system. I can't risk anything. And you are dead while you're alive. You're breathing, and you're moving, but you're not living. And God put you here to live and to enjoy. Yes? He wants you to enjoy your life today. Fear of saying the wrong thing and being canceled. Say there's two genders. I say it in here and I'll get fan mail. Do you know 150 times in God's word, he directly says, fear not. Fear not. So Jake mentioned the tornado. So I'm from Louisiana. Dude, we're used to tornadoes. 
Like, unless it's an F4 or 5, we don't get that upset about it, right? We got an F1. I'm not making fun of it. But it literally landed two blocks from our house. Two blocks. So where it landed at this last week. And very unusual for Colorado. And Daniel's driving in the middle of it. And so he calls, hey, Dad, can I stop by the house real quick? What are you, what are you doing, Dorothy? Get over here and... <laughs> Pulls up in Holly's minivan, right? I mean, the wind is going so... It's just white going across. Worse than that, Chris is driving home at that time right there too, right? And I'm just like... Daniel goes, Dad, you're awful calm. I said, oh, son, you, this isn't even a storm. Trust me. The old man has seen storms. This is... You know, and I just... The fear. I mean, it just produces fear. Saw fear, fear in my wife's eyes when she got out of her car. She just sobbed. Fear's a weird thing. Let me tell you a, a, a story about fear that uh, froze me one time. Um, I didn't tell this last night. I, wasn't, I didn't know how visitors would take the story, right? And so there's so many more today, I'm going to tell the, tell the story. <laughs> uh, I was 14, and we had gone to this conference. Um, my mom and dad took me. And one of the things that they talked about was spiritual warfare, but the way he talked about it was not just in prayer. He said, like, there are things that you could have in your house that give the enemy an inroad into your house. I'd never heard that before. So at 14, you know, I'm full of zeal, man, and I just hear this message, and I'm like... And so my mom was married to my stepdad, who was... This is not a good guy. And so there were things in our house that shouldn't have... So in the middle of the night, I get up with a trash bag... And I take all, and I load all the things that I don't think should be in our house in the trash bag. I'm going to take it outside and throw it all away. And I didn't ask. I'm just like, the zeal of the Lord has consumed me, man. <laughs> it's like, Pastor Greg, I fill it all in a trash bag. And I'm just saying out loud, devil, you have no place here in this house. You're not allowed to be in this house, right? And I'm just doing this thing by myself. I walked to the front door to open it up, to go out to the trash can. And it was like two pair of hands pushed back against my chest and stopped me. I literally froze with fear suddenly. It was, and I, you might go, well, you were 14, you were a kid. Till this day, when I talk about it, I can remember being stopped at the front door. It scared me so bad, I dropped the bag and turned around and ran. Yeah? Fear's a weird thing. So was it just in my mind? Was it real and something came against me? So my opinion is something came against me. But I know fear sometimes can just be here and stops you from. It's a weird thing. And we live in such a day that's fearful for so many people. And yet, the Lord put us here not to be fearful, but to be full of faith. To be overcomers. To look at the future and not be regretful are full of fear about it, but to be positive about it, we should be the ones shining the light the brightest right now. We should be the ones telling people, hey, there is an answer, and God is still on the throne, and it's going to be okay. And by the way, read the end of the book. We win. I mean, he's so good, he tells us how it turns out. And we forget. With Elijah, though, let me say this. We are more susceptible to fear when we're discouraged and when we're tired, yes or no? So let me tell you what really happened to Elijah. He has this incredible victory spiritually, and he's on a spiritual high, 
But the thing Elijah didn't do was reconnect with the Lord right away. And we think that the spiritual high is where we experience God. And the truth of the matter is what happened on the mountain was a demonstration of what just happened in Elijah's life. All the fire and the wind, the earthquake, that's what he experienced with the prophets of Baal and the victory that he got. And nothing caused him to come out of the cave when those things were going on. It was only when he heard the still small voice that he covered his face in reverence and walked to the front of the cave in order to experience the presence of God. It's a demonstration of that. Elijah had this powerful experience and instead of trying to go back and get with God again, he's going on the emotion of a spiritual victory. Have you ever gone on emotion and found yourself so tired So the second one is just the benefit of rest. Look at verse five and seven again. Then he lay down under a tree and slept. And suddenly an angel came and touched him. Get up and eat. The angel said, Elijah uh, saw near his head a loaf baked over coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank. Then he went back to sleep. Then later the Lord's angel came to him a second time. The angel touched him and said, get up and eat. If you don't, the journey will be too hard for you. Um, that doesn't seem like, like a real spiritual thing, does it? I mean, doesn't it seem like the angel could have come and like, I'm going to breathe on you. <sighs> You're now anointed, go. I'm going to pray for you. I mean, how many times when we are just so tired and so exhausted and so beat up, we just think, I just need somebody to pray for me. Can I tell you, all the prayers in the world will not help you when you are emotionally mentally and physically exhausted. I'm sorry. And I'm a person who believes in prayer. But man, I've taught this for years. You're made up of three parts. You do have a spirit, but you have a mind and you have a body. And if one or both get messed up, it affects the other one. So for instance, when you're depressed, how easy is it to pray? How do you feel physically? When you're exhausted, how fun is it to try to go to God and pray? I mean, one affects, it's like a three-legged stool. You kick one of them away, balance yourself on two. You cannot do it. So this doesn't sound like a very spiritual thing, but it's probably one of the most spiritual things that could have happened. The man needed to eat and he needed to rest, and that's exactly how God answers him in his moment of need. Now, Chris has an aunt named Furl. Pastor Greg, did you know Furl Childers? You knew who she was, right? She, church planner, and they planted, I don't even know how many churches. Gary was here last night, and he, he, he told, they pastored for 70 years. And the way they planted churches, they literally built them by hand. That was the day they lived in. I, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Stayed for a few years after they built it, turned it over to someone, and then go someplace else brand new. And pioneer, man, pioneers. They did it for 70 years. We started Jubilee. By the way, this is Pastor Greg Surratt. And um, yeah, that's, well, let me tell you who he is first, okay? You may know, but let me tell you who this guy is. Pastor Greg um, has been a key person in the life of your pastor, in Pastor Terry's life, Chris's life. Um, Greg is the founder of ARC Churches, Association of Related Churches. They plant more churches in the United States than any other organization does and have been doing for years. Pastors a fantastic church. I, I guess you're the founding pastor of a fantastic church called Seacoast Church now. His son is the pastor of the church now. And Greg is just the man. How's that? He's the man. But Greg has been 
to me. Um, the Lord has sent him at key times in the life of Jubilee to help make decisions and to know things. And so I'm referring to Pastor Greg, who's visiting us this morning, but he uh, grew up here in Colorado. He and Pastor Terry are 50-plus year friends. Um, how about that? Now you can give this man a hand. This is an awesome man. Um, and so Furl Childers is Chris's aunt, her father's sister, older sister. And they pastored for 70 plus years. We had just started the church. And we were in the school. Um, no, we were, it wasn't the school or, yeah, the school. We were in the school. And uh, man, it was, it was just one of those hard times. So I, I, perfect story. Here's the day that Furl Childers visits Jubilee. 100 people. 100 people, right? So you know who the visitors are. You know who your regulars are, right? These two dudes walk in. I'd never seen before, but I'm like, great, two visitors. And they walk in together, and then they split up and go two separate. We only had two places you could sit. One guy sits over here. One guy sits over here. In the transition between worship and the preaching, the dudes stand up and begin to yell at the top of their lungs, repent. You need to repent. Everyone in this church needs to repent. What would you do? Would you fall on your face and repent? Dude, I come off the platform, the little platform, like in a panic, and grab both of them. Literally walked them back to the back door, said, thanks, guys. Let them go. The Broncos had just beaten, um, who, who was it in that second? The Falcons. They beat the Falcons. So I turned around and walked back in, and it must have been the Holy Spirit. I said, they're Falcons fans, and they're really upset at what just happened <laughs> to Denver. And Chris and I go home, and I'm like, well, that's it. It's, it it's been teetering anyway. It's a baby. The easiest time to kill it's a baby. Nobody's coming back after that. I mean, it's just, it's over. And Furl Childers says, John, you know what you really need? You just need to rest. You are so tired. You just need to rest. And this was her exact quote. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just get rest. That's what she said. I was like, I need a word, Furl. I need something to go on. She said, you just need to get rest. All right, I'm studying for this message. And I found this quote. Charles Spurgeon, do you know who Charles Spurgeon is? Pastored Metropolitan Tabernacle, London, England, oh, 120 years ago, when most churches then, you know, were Church of England and 50 people, 100 people. He had 3,000 people in downtown London, and they're full of the Holy Spirit, man. It's a powerful church. I found this quote this week by Charles Spurgeon. Sometimes the most spiritual thing a person can do is get enough rest and replenishment. Aunt Furl and Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> I'm going to read to you a quote. This is not my material right now. This comes from uh, a Jewish theologian, and it's beautiful and it's powerful. And I think the best way that I can honor what he wrote, it's so ministered to me that I felt like I just needed to read it to you, and it's just a couple of quick paragraphs, so let me do this. Deeper rest can be described as a spiritual rest, a rest that comes from being in communion with God. The Jewish scholar Abraham Herschel describes this deep rest. It's a Hebrew word, menuah, menuah. Say that, menuah. According to Herschel, Manua came into existence when God gave the Sabbath and can be described as, here's Manua, tranquility, serenity, peace, and repose. 
Repose is a word we don't use in modern English anymore, but maybe some older folks might remember where we used the word repose at one time. Anybody remember where you would find? So when you went to a funeral home, the person was in repose, remember? Because it was supposed to represent the rest that they entered into. Now, God's not saying he's going to kill you, but he's offering you rest. Manua is the state in which there is no strife, no fighting, no fear, and no distrust. In addition to the physical aspect of rest, there is a deeper spiritual need that all humans have, this yearning for manua or the assurance that all is well. Wouldn't you love to wake up knowing all is well? Wouldn't you like to go through the day knowing all is well? Wouldn't you like to go to bed at nighttime knowing all is well? That's the rest that God wants to give us. The problem is that many people look to all the wrong things to provide this deeper spiritual rest, resulting in increased restlessness. Is that not the place we live at today? Here's the end of it. People may not be aware of the need for both physical and spiritual rest. Physical rest without spiritual rest is not satisfying, and spiritual rest without physical rest is not restoring. Here's what we've been led to believe. If you just take a two-week vacation, everything will be okay. But if you don't get the spiritual rest you need, have you ever come back from your vacation saying these words, I need a vacation? And nobody has any mercy on you, do they? <laughs> the rest that God offers, think about Jesus. When Jesus was done with some of the most powerful ministry times, his secret was to go away Sometimes for just a few hours, sometimes overnight. Sometimes he'd take one or two of the disciples, but he would always go back to the presence of the Lord. It's what Elijah needed to do. Jesus would confront the enemy. You'd see the miracles, the miraculous, right? But then he would sneak away and spend time with the Father. He needed that rest. I think we've learned if I can just get the physical rest, I'll be okay. It's not just physical, you need spiritual. And you don't have to do it in two weeks. You can do it overnight with the Lord. If you learn to retreat and be in the presence of the Lord. So the last one is the necessity of God's presence. And if you want to learn about that, come back next week. And I'll teach you about how to get into the presence of the Lord on a regular basis. This is our 25th year doing this in this church. Learning to be in the presence of the Lord has been the difference that's kept us doing it over the length of time. It's not the highs, and it's sure not the lows. It's the presence of the Lord that makes all the difference. So, Father, we love you. God, just take a few minutes right now to acknowledge your presence that's in this room, that everything is all right, that you offer to us rest. Jesus said, come unto me, all of you who are weary, and heavy with burdens, and I will give you what? Rest. I'll give you rest. It's really that word, that spiritual and physical rest. I mean, so often, man, we're trying to get it all done, carrying our own stuff, and it's so heavy. And life just adds more burdens. And we love God, and we want to experience God, and sometimes we really do experience incredible things, and it seems to just make us more tired. Because it's not in the big miracle. It's not in the public, really. It's in the private with the Lord. 
where he whispers to you and speaks to you, brings you into his presence. So I want to ask a question real quickly. How many of you need rest? Not a vacation, but real rest. You need to know that everything is all right and it's going to be all right. And it's not just false hope or something that we tell ourselves to get through another day, but it's truly what the Lord offers. Come to me, all of you who are weary and laid down with big burdens and I will give you rest. Jesus goes on to say this, give me your burdens and take from me mine because mine is light and easy. It's that rest. In a way, it's the perfect way to understand salvation. God's asking you for the exchange. Give me your life and I'll give you mine. Give me your your death, your burden, your cares, your worry, your sin, your failure, your flaws, and I'll give you my life. I mean, how good is that? If we fully understood how much he loves us and how much he cares for us and what he offers to us. People don't disbelieve because there's not evidence. People disbelieve in spite of the evidence. And we stand here in this moment. Do you hear the Lord say to you, come unto me if you're weary and you're heavy and I'll give you rest. Take my life and give me yours. I mean, it really is the perfect picture. Jesus took our place so we could have his place. He died so we can live. And while he did it for everyone, it's applied in our life when we choose it. And maybe you find yourself here as a visitor for the very first time, or maybe you've been coming to Jubilee for a very long time. The common denominator is do you hear the Lord speaking to you today? Give me your life and I'll give you mine. And if you say, Pastor John, I hear that. And I want to say yes. Yes to Jesus today. I want to give him my life. And he can have all that goes with it. And I want what he offers. His life. His mercy. His grace. His love. And if you say, Pastor, when you pray, remember me today. Because I want to say yes. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up real quick and say, Pastor, pray for me. Yeah, there's many of us. There's many. I'm just looking around. No one else is looking. I'm just looking real quick. Yeah, you can put them back down. Thank you. It's Father, you see every hand and every heart. Lord, you know everything about us and you love us so much. And Father, I'm just asking Lord, for people that are caring so much, trying hard, always harder, Lord, would you just show them that today you're the way.
Lord, for those that come to you and say, God, I need the life that you're offering. Father, would you do the great exchange right now? Would you take the death and would you give them your life? For those, Lord, who are just struggling so hard, God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Would you pour it out? Would you pull them aside and would you whisper to them again of your love and your faithfulness, God, of your plan and your purpose? Lord, thank you for your goodness to all of us today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.